Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for listening to us today. We've got a great show. We've got Dr. Avina. She's an associate professor of neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. She's a research neuroscientist and an expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction, with a special focus on nutrition during early life and pregnancy and women's health. She has done groundbreaking work developing models to characterize food addiction and the dangers of excess sugar intake. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from several groups, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In addition addition to over 100 peer-reviewed scholarly publications, Dr. Avina has written several popular books. She has written Why Diets Fail, Because You're Addicted to Sugar. Hmm. What to eat when you're pregnant, what to feed your baby and your toddler, and what to eat when you want to get pregnant. Her latest book, Sugarless, will be released in December of 2023, so it's just been out. She frequently appears as a science expert in the media, including regular appearances on Good Day New York, The Doctors, and the former Dr. Oz show, as well as news programs. Her, her work has been featured in Time Magazine, Bloomberg, Business Week, The New York Times, and mi- many other periodicals. She's a member of the Penguin Random House Speakers Bureau. And this is what I find so interesting. She has the second most watched TED ED talk, health talk, How Sugar Affects Your Brain, with over 16 million views and still counting. Dr. Avina, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So this this whole addiction to sugar, it seems like it's either sugar or carbs, one of the two, that the people that come to the Brain Performance Center, when when we have that little nutrition talk, it's one of those two that really is a problem. How do we get addicted to sugar? Well, I think it is something that most people struggle with at some point in their life. And where it begins, I think, actually is somewhat out of our control because what we're finding from the research is that it probably begins before we're even born. Unfortunately, it probably begins in utero when, you know, women are pregnant. And I think that's one of the issues that we're finding that makes it so difficult to treat sugar addiction is because it's something that we're basically born with and grow up with. And then by the time we realize we have it and it's a problem, we're sometimes already into midlife, if not later. And so it can really be something that's difficult for people to cope with because it's something that they've been living with for so long. Well, you know, it's so interesting because growing up, my mom had this saying, and it used to drive me crazy. You are what you eat. And listening to how that sugar addiction, it can even start before you're, while you're still in the womb. I guess you are what you eat. And not only you, but anybody that's with you. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's true. And I feel like we need to almost, I know you said that that saying annoys you, but I, I think there's a lot of value behind it, right? If you think about it, we are what we eat. We become what we consume in many ways. And if you're eating a lot of junk foods, processed foods that don't have much value, it's going to be negative and it's not going to be good for your health. Oh, you're absolutely right. The reason it used to drive me crazy is because I was eating junk food. And and I knew, I absolutely knew that there were better choices. I just didn't at that age want to admit it. And I've actually turned that around because I've thought about, I mean, nutrition is the foundation of the brain. And I've when I talk to people, I'll say, you know, I think like I eat on days that I eat well, which most most days I really make a lot of effort to do that. I'm clear, I'm sharp, I have clarity on the days that I'm just that I'm just so rushed that I just grab whatever I can. And even though I'm thinking, well, I'm eating healthy, I'm eating a protein bar. I don't look how much sugar that protein bar has got on the back of the wrapper. But I do. I think like I eat, it does impact me on a cognitive level. It does. And there's a lot of research that's been coming out lately, and I talk about this in my new book, Sugarless, about how sugar, it's not really only about body weight. I think for the longest time, people were focused on reducing sugar because they needed to lose weight. And it was more about, you know, a physical health reason. Now we're finding that sugar has an impact on our mental health. It has an impact on our cognitive functioning. Like you're saying, you think clear when you don't have a lot of it. And it's so true that, you know, it's affecting us in a more global way than we previously thought. And when people cut back on added sugar and can reduce it, not only do they see the physical health benefits, but then they also start to feel some of those mental health and mental wellness benefits, too, that often don't get discussed. Do you think people realize that they're addicted to sugar or do they just it just kind of evolve? I don't think people realize it. I think in part, this is because we live in such a sugar centric society where, you know, sugar's everywhere. I mean, you can't even go to a coffee shop anymore and get a coffee. It has to have 50 different types of flavorings of sugar in it. And, you know, it's really become something that's so pervasive in our culture that I think that people don't notice it. And I think that's really dangerous because it's basically become normalized and hidden in many ways. And so one of the things that when I work with people and when I, you know, talk with people about how they can cut back on their sugar, you know, the first step in cutting back is recognizing it, is realizing, wow, I'm eating a lot of sugar and I don't even realize it. So many healthy foods, like you mentioned about the protein bars, a lot of people see a protein bar or a granola bar, or, you know, something that's packaged and marketed as being healthy, it looks like it's gotten a lot of protein in it, which is good for us. They don't realize that, yeah, well, the protein's good, but the sugar's not. And there's a lot of times these hidden sugars in many of our foods that people don't realize are there. Once they start to identify the sugar and realize where it's lurking, then they can start to address the addiction and start to realize how they can get the sugar out of their diet. Well, how did you get so interested in this topic? I had a really, you know, interesting pathway here. I didn't ever have any 
major issues with sugar or eating behaviors or anything like that. I had a, I guess, a relatively normal childhood in the 80s. I mean, we had soda in our house and, you know, sweets and things like that. But I fortunately never struggled with any of that. I got into this because I was in graduate school. I had just started at Princeton and I was doing a PhD in neuroscience. And the lab that I was going to work in was studying motivated behavior and trying to better understand, you know, why people are motivated to do certain things and, you know, sometimes why people do things that they know aren't good for them. And one thing that was of interest was food. Why do people eat foods that they know are bad for them? And so a lot of the focus at that time, this is going back into the early 2000s, had been on, you know, the obesity epidemic and the rising number of people who were developing obesity and how this is a danger. And at that point, the blame was still being put on the individual. It was kind of viewed as a moral failing. And if somebody was overweight or obese, at that time, the idea was, well, it's their fault. They don't have the willpower. And we started to think, well, maybe there's something more to it. Our food environment has changed. We have all these processed foods all these engineered foods that are available now, what if those foods are affecting people and making them overeat? What if the foods are more like a drug and less like a food? And what if that means that maybe people are getting addicted to these foods and that's why they can't stop eating them. And that's why people are developing obesity and becoming overweight. So we started doing a whole line of research, basically trying to see whether or not food could be addictive. And so we conducted, gosh, I don't even know how many studies, hundreds of studies over the years to really just try to see whether or not food could meet the criteria as being an addictive substance. And it does. And we've shown this in papers and other people have replicated these studies and shown it um, over and over again that food, especially sugar, does meet the criteria as being something that people can get addicted to. Well, and, and it's hard because it tastes so good. And some of my favorite sugar is in salad dressing. It's not it's true. I mean, I always say, oh, I don't eat that. I don't eat that many sweets and I don't eat that many desserts, but I eat salad dress, and I love some of the salad dressings. And I look at the back of the bottle. Why is this so good? Well, it's got a lot of sugar in it. Yeah, that's the problem is that, you know, sugar is parading itself around in a variety of different ways, right? So we have it in the obvious places, like everybody knows, you know, cakes and cookies, yeah, that's going to have sugar in it. But, you know, people who are trying to make healthier choices might opt for the salad. And like you said, that salad dressing, if you don't pay attention, it can have more sugar in it than a cupcake would. So that's why it's so important that you're aware of what you're eating and that you're looking at those labels and understanding the ingredients lists and, you know, really trying to dissect that information because it's important information. I mean, would you put a crumbled up cookie on top of your salad? No. no. Right. <laughs> but essentially you are, if you're using a salad dressing that contains a lot of added sugar. And it's not just the salad dressing, it's lots of condiments. And I talk about this in the book, Sugarless. You know, there's lots of really sneaky places that sugar's hiding. One of the fun things that we often do when we have lab meetings in my group is 
you know, somebody will share, what's the craziest place you've found sugar? And you'd be surprised. I mean, you know, bacon, here's, that's an example. Bacon can have sugar in it. I mean, you think bacon, all it is is supposed to be pork, right? It's not anything but, but lo and behold, it can contain sugar. Another one that was really interesting um, that came up not too long ago was English muffins. Oh. Who would think that an English muffin would have added sugar, but take a look at the package and check because yours might. So you really just need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, sugar is lurking everywhere and you have to be able to figure out where it is so that you know how much you're eating, because if not, then it's just going to make it so easy for you to overdo it. Well, and one of the problems I have found, I have a couple of years ago, I've started reading the packaging. I probably should have been doing it a lot longer than that. Mm-hmm. But, and my motto is, if I cannot pronounce the words, the ingredients, then I am not going to eat them. And one of the things, I mean, not everything just says sugar. They don't make it quite that obvious. Right. There's lots of different names for sugar. And I talk about this in Sugarless. Part of it is knowing the different code words for sugar. So anything that has the words syrup attached to it is a sugar. And so fruit juice concentrate, that's another code word for sugar. Um, And so it's not just going to say the word sugar. It could be high fructose corn syrup. It could be maltodextrin. It could be a variety. There's, I think, over... 50 or 70 different commonly used terms for added sugar out there. And so you got to become familiar with them. You got to know these things. And like, I love what you just said about how if you can't pronounce it, you know, why would you eat it? If you don't know what something is, why would you eat it? And if you're looking at the back of a nutrition label and you see a name of something that's in the food and you don't know what it is, that's to me, that's the equivalent of, finding a pill on the ground and just popping it in your mouth, right? If you don't know what that pill is, why are you going to take it? So same with our ingredients and our food. I think it's important that people start to pay attention. I think a lot of it is we have this kind of blind trust, right? We, we assume that, oh, if it's for sale in the grocery store, it's not going to be bad for us, right? If it's, you know, legally about, allowed to be in the store, it must be good for us. It's food. It's okay to eat. But it's not quite that way. I think we need to be, you know, more mindful of our own health and our own health interests and really, you know, take control of that and take ownership of it. Well, I have to think, I think we have to be our own advocate. It's why didn't I start reading the back of the packages until two years ago? I was okay, you know, (laughs) and then I learned I had high cholesterol. Okay, I better, I got to get sharp here. I got to pay attention to things. And I think that's what most of us need is a reason to, you know what it's like to change a habit. And we're all, we're so used to instant gratification. Oh, I've got 15 minutes before my next client. I've got to eat something. Well, I dig around in my desk and what do I find? I find that nice protein bar with all that sugar. And that's my responsibility to have something else in that desk drawer to give myself other choices. Right. And I I think that, you know, you really bring up a good point about how we've become so hurried and rushed in our life that it's become almost like an afterthought 
of thinking about what are we going to put in our bodies to nourish them. And that's, I think, very dangerous because we've made it very low on the list of priorities to take care of ourselves and to eat our eat healthy foods. I mean, if you think about it, that should be the most important thing <laughs> is making sure that we're taking care of ourselves, that we're eating the right foods to fuel us through our busy days. Because if we don't, then there won't be a body to put through those busy days. But most people let the nutrition piece and eating healthy piece fall by the wayside and they rely on the processed foods. They rely on these convenience foods simply because they don't have enough time. And I mean, I get it. I work, I have a family, you know, everybody's got a lot going on, but it's so important that we push back against that and make the time, make the time to have time to prepare healthy foods and to eat the things that we know are good for us. Well, and you mentioned processed foods, UPF. That has become a term that I'm very familiar with. It's not just the sweets. It's the jalapeno potato chips and all that, you know, everything that is so overprocessed. And again, I have some very simple rules, but if it comes in a bag, a box, or a can, and it's got something in there that's going to keep it good for a couple of years, it's probably not good for my body. Right. And and that's so true. And, you know, you're right about the term ultra-processed food, UPF. That's becoming a term that we're hearing more and more about. And again, I agree, although I don't love that term because I don't even consider many of those things to be foods. I think they're just engineered, like, scientists. Genetically modified. (laughs) Genetically modified, but even just, you know, man-made things that we are choosing to eat. (laughs) And, you know, they're being marketed as being quote unquote food. But I don't know. I really think that in order to solve a lot of the problems that we have linked to nutrition, and we have a lot of problems linked to nutrition. I mean, the majority of the preventable causes of death, like cardiovascular disease, some forms of cancer. I mean, so many of these things can be linked back to what we're eating. And we can prevent so much unnecessary suffering and death if people were to eat healthy. And so I think we need to redesign redesign the definition of what a food is. I think that's the biggest problem we're facing these days is that, you know, oh, it's a food, it's a food, so it must be good for you. Just eat it in moderation. But when you have all these engineered products out there, I don't think they should be considered in the same category as, you know, apples and broccoli, (laughs) I mean, to me, they're two completely different things, but yet they're lumped into this category of food. And I think that's where all the problems start. I agree with that. Let's, for our listeners, let's define, let's define foods. And when you said apple, broccoli, yes, yes. So if it comes from the dirt, if it grows in the ground, that's a definite yes on foods. Where else does it come from? Well, I mean, if it was once alive, so I mean, I think obviously, you know, protein that comes from animals, that's a food. Um, I think that, you know, we have products that are kind of in the gray area, right? I mean, you know, you could have something that is, you know, based off of 
some of these things that grow in the ground. Like there's a big movement now with, you know, the plant-based foods. More and more people are trying to reduce their intake of red meat and instead opting to eat more plants, which I think is great. But, you know, there becomes shades of gray, right? I mean, if you look at a lot of the packaged, processed, plant-based foods, I think that you'd be better off eating a hamburger, to be quite honest, because many of them contain a lot of additives and chemicals and things like that, where it's kind of taking away from any health benefits that they're purporting to have. Well, I have heard all of the, the a lot of the, the plant, now you can get yogurt with plant-based protein in it. Um, yes. And it's, the selling line on that is less sugar. Right. Less sugar. And again, I think this is why it is so important for people to understand what those nutrition labels mean and to understand the ingredients and to look at the ingredients list. Because if you have a plant-based yogurt, that's great if it, you know, is lower in sugar, but if it contains a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't even know what it does, then you really need to understand the ingredients before you can make a decision about whether or not it's going to be healthy for you. Well, and those are hard decisions to make because they take time. And everybody is, as as you mentioned earlier, we're in a hurry. We're moving. We've got, we've got this, we've got this, and then our kids have this and this and how many hours are there in the day? But I do agree with what you said. The one of the most, as far as for the brain, the two most important things you can do for your brain. One is focus on your sleep. Those neurons and, and dendrites are wiring and firing all day, creating that toxic waste. The only time those little glia cells can come out and clean that mess up is when you're asleep. And the second, we talked, you know, is nutrition but also hydration, water. I can't tell you, one of the first things I ask people is how much water do you drink? Oh, I drink four cups of coffee every morning. That's not water. Well, it's made with water. Well, coffee is dehydrating. It's not hydrating. And people look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think you're right that it's, it's just that we have these kind of basic core things that we could do that are not really that difficult, right? I mean, if you think about it, if you set a bedtime goal every night and you set a wake up goal every night and you try your hardest to hit them, do that most nights and you'll get proper rest. And like you said, your brain will be able to, you know, get the rest that it needs to keep itself functioning well. It's those little things. It's just, but it's committing to them. It's saying, okay, you know what? It's I'm going to go to bed now. And it's also, you know, about like you said with the hydration, making sure you're drinking the right things, being mindful about it. And I've heard people say that about. I'm a big coffee drinker, so I can defend those who (laughs) try to convince you that coffee is hydrating. You have to think about the purpose behind what you're drinking. And you know, a lot of times people who do drink a lot of coffee will say, oh, I have a headache. I need to drink some more coffee because my caffeine must be (laughs) wearing off. But the reality is you're probably dehydrating yourself because you're drinking so much coffee. So you really do need to be, you know, I think mindful of the fact that what you do has a long-term impact on your health. And these little things, like maybe instead of having that extra cup of coffee, you have a seltzer or you have a glass of water it can make a big difference in the long run, but it's just about making those changes and sticking with them. Well, I'm so happy to have a, a, a neuroscientist 
on my show talking with me about this because there's so much confusing inter- information on the internet about nutrition and about sugar. And I get asked questions every week about, well, what diet do you recommend? Because I read this, you know, buff, 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 fine. My only, my only advice is try to eat natural food and food that grows in the ground, food that you cook. Mm-hmm. And do you have any other advice for those that have got, I mean, there is, there's good information on the internet, but there's a lot of bad. There is. And I think that the internet is, you know, the best and the worst thing that could have happened to us in the sense of getting information out there, because it is great to have access to all this information, but it is also coming with some costs and risks because not all that information is accurate. You know, it's funny, I I have little kids and, you know, obviously they've grown up knowing that the internet is there and I did not grow up with the internet. And, you know, I was telling them the story of back when, you know, I was a kid and the dinosaurs roamed the earth. We actually had to go to the encyclopedia and get information if we wanted to know something about a topic. And so basically Google was the Britannica encyclopedia. (laughs) And back then when we had to look everything up in an encyclopedia, you could be a hundred percent sure that it was accurate, right? You knew that that was the information and that was correct. And now when you go to look something up on Google or whatever search engine it is, you're going to get 50 different versions of it. And there could be, various degrees of accuracy in each of those versions. So it is really a challenge for young people and for all of us these days to evaluate the information that's presented to us to understand whether or not it's factual. And so I think that poses a really big challenge for us because when we're trying to make a decision about our health or get information, not only do we have too much information, but then we got to do all this work to figure out if it's accurate or not. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write my book, Sugarless, was to Synthesize all this research and all the stuff that's out there on addiction to food and help people to understand the science, but then also give them a way in which they could use that science to their advantage. So you're a big part of the scientific community. Have you seen a big attitude shift around the idea that sugar can be addictive? Oh, yes. Absolutely. When we first started doing this research back in the year 2001, I remember going to conferences and presenting the work, you know, at academic conferences, typically before you publish a paper in a journal, you'll go to a conference and you'll present your findings to your peers and get feedback. And it's a great way to kind of, you know, get a preview of what people are working on. And I remember presenting this information and looking out in the audience and just seeing a whole bunch of like blank stares looking at me as if I was a crazy person. And at the time, it was really because nobody was talking about food and addiction in the same sentence. And if you go back and look in the research papers, nobody was studying it. It was a brand new thing. And so back then, you know, food was food, obesity was a medical problem that wasn't even talked about within the context of an addiction and drugs and alcohol were the things that people got addicted to. Now, if you flash forward, we've really, really made a lot of progress 
Most of the medical establishments agree that there's an addictive nature to overeating and to obesity. There are treatment programs now that are adopting an addiction model when trying to treat obesity and overeating. And so it has changed. We still have a ways to go, but in terms of the medical and scientific community, many, many people are now on board with this idea. And I think the challenge that we're facing moving forward is, you know, how do we deal with this? How do we prevent it? And what can we do so that people don't continue to struggle if they are addicted to food? Well, let me ask you this. I mean, in some ways, I think this is a society issue. So maybe in the lunches that kids get in the school system, maybe they look at the sugar content that's found there. That's definitely one place to start. And I think starting with young people is so important. And I've been talking about this a lot lately because, you know, I get invited to speak all over the world on this topic to different types of you know, groups, institutions, corporations, and I love doing it and I'll continue to do it, but I feel like the message is not getting to the people who need to hear it the most. The kids are the ones that need to get on board with this because they're the ones that can stop it in its tracks. Adults already are addicted to sugar, right? By the time we get to adulthood, you know, it's already causing problems. What we really need to do is to change our kids' attitudes and change parents' attitudes about what they feed their kids so that we can prevent some of this from happening in the first place so that we're not going back and doing damage control to rectify it, you know, after problems have ensued 10 or 15 years down the road. So, but you know, I, and I do agree with that, but I do believe growing up that we mimic, we try to copy behavior that we see modeled and that's yeah. a that's an issue I've had with social media and with, you know, parents come in and they're concerned about the amount of time their child spends on social media on their phone. But then we have to stop and look and, and well, what are you what are you modeling? You know, it's true. oh, yeah, you know, I and then that then that that becomes the hard spot. OK. You've got to limit the amount of time that you get on your social media. And you want them to see that. You want to demonstrate that. I think it's so true. I think that, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a friend today. I get together with a friend of mine probably once every month or two. And we meet up for coffee, just catch up on our, you know, children and lives and work. And it's just always so interesting to me that it's become so socially acceptable for us to be in like intimate conversations with other people, but have our cell phones out and be distractible at any given moment. If a, a, an important call comes in or an important email comes in, like we're always glancing at our phones. And I just think it's so to me interesting that, you know, we've, we've got to break that cycle. We've got to teach our kids, like you could be focused on the person you're speaking with and not constantly be distracted. And, you know, I, I just think that, that to me, that's such an interesting phenomenon that I've seen evolve over time, that it's become this thing where phones are allowed and we're allowed to be interrupted at any given moment for any random thing. It's like our phone has become an extension of our, of ourselves. 
Yeah, but I mean, don't you think to have like a a genuine conversation with someone, you need to show that person that I'm giving you myself, I'm giving my time to you, I'm looking you in the face. One of the things that I've had interesting conversations with among young kids, I have a teenage daughter and then I have an eight-year-old, but you would be surprised how many teenagers can't look you in the eye. How they can't make that face contact that you know, when you're having a conversation, they, they can't look you in the eye. And I think it's it's not because they're being rude. I think it's because they were raised on the phone in the sense that they're having these conversations on the phone and you know that eye contact is getting lost. And even among adults now, if you think about it, you know, people are constantly glancing at their phones and not looking you in the eye when you're talking to them, then you know, we're losing that connection. Oh, and we are. That, that's important. Yeah. And to me, with that comes some respect. It's, you know, as you said, if you can't take 30 minutes, you only see this person maybe once or twice a month, and maybe you don't talk on the phone on a regular basis. But if you can't take that, schedule that 30 minutes, just like you would schedule a business meeting. Right. And and because that's when you said that, I thought, yeah, I, I do that. And no, I don't want to do that. And I thought, well, maybe I just need to start putting everything on my schedule. And then because if it's on my schedule, I know I'm committed. Right. And, com- and I commitment kind of yeah. ties into addiction, too. It does. I think that, you know, I, I guess, you know, I don't know how we got on this conversation. We got a little bit off track of sugar, but it all does come back to the point that, you know, I think we need to get back to the basics. And I think, you know, getting our kids involved at an early age with taking nutrition seriously in our modern world. I mean, let's face it. We're not going to get rid of cell phones. The internet's not going to go away. We're not going to go back to how it used to be, right? That's not going to happen. We need to adapt. But I do think we need to bring back some of those things that maybe we lost along the way, like cooking at home with our kids and getting kids involved with preparing foods, getting kids to understand the ingredients, getting them to be a part of the process, because we have to give them those skills from an early point in life so that they can make better choices as they get older. And I think a lot of that begins with just the basic knowledge around the kitchen and the basic knowledge of what goes into our food. Well, that's a great place to start. I can remember my first cookbook. It, I'll never forget it. And my mom got it for me, and I think it had like eight pages in it. It wasn't really a cookbook. And I'll never forget the visual, the picture of the of the young lady on the cover. But And that is, I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but that's really when I became aware of, oh, what are the ingredients? So... But you're right. We've, I mean, we addiction is a basic. Sugar addiction has become a basic. So can we relate it to other addictions? I mean, because when I think of addiction, I immediately, because I come at it from the brain perspective, I think about, oh yeah, we start kicking all that dopamine out, that neurotransmitter that feels really good. So, and I know that happens with alcohol and drugs. Does that happen with sugar? It absolutely does. And that's been a big part of our research has been to show that dopamine is released in response to eating sugar, just like what you would see in response to using drugs or alcohol. 
And so the hallmark of drug and alcohol use is that it gives you that hit, that high, and that's dopamine being released. And food doesn't do that, right? If you eat a, you know, a salad without the salad dressing you like on it, <laughs> or even if you have a steak or, you know, anything for that matter that would be considered food under my definition, then it's not going to release dopamine. But sugar does. Sugar releases dopamine in the brain like drugs do. And so that's really why it becomes so addictive because it's hijacking our brain. It's hijacking these systems in our brain and setting us down this path of addictive behaviors. That's why we crave it. That's why we experience withdrawal if we don't have it or if we try to go off of it. All these things happen just like what happens when people get hooked on drugs. So what advice do you have for our listeners when you start to feel that, yeah, yeah, you know, I like that. I like that. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, I want that. I want some of that. And then it gets to be, I need it. I need that. What advice do you have for them? Well, you know, I think it's, it's really important that people are in control. And I think if, you know, you look at the different criteria for addiction, the, American Psychiatric Association has a variety of different criteria that one needs to meet in order to have an addictive addiction or substance use disorder, as they call it. And these can vary in severity. You could have a mild addiction. You could have a severe addiction. I think it really boils down to how much control do you have? And if you find that it's difficult to say no or you can come up with 56 reasons why you shouldn't say no, then that's when you need to start to think about making some changes and start to get some help and to start making some plans so that you can get yourself out of this spiral of addiction. And in the book, Sugarless, I go through a seven-step plan to help people get back on track and to help to figure out, first of all, you know, what are the triggers? Why do I find that I want to eat sugar at certain times of the day? A lot of times it's linked back to stuff that has nothing to do with food, but it's more about stressors in our life or bad habits that we've fallen into as a way to comfort ourselves or to self-medicate. And so really just taking a step-by-step -step approach to figure out where the sugar is, figure out why you're using it, when you're using it, and what you could do to replace it. That's really the key. It's not about depriving yourself and taking away. It's about giving to yourself. And you're giving yourself a lot more life and a lot more health when you get a handle on how much sugar you're eating. Well, Dr. Avina, that is great advice. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Let's, for our listeners out there that want to know where they can get that book or learn more about you, can you share that information? Yes. So anyone who's interested in the book Sugarless, you can get that wherever books are sold. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's also available on my website, which is drnicoleavina.com. And if you're interested in following me on social media, I'm at Dr. Nicole Avina. And uh, definitely check out my website if you're interested in more information about our research or sugar addiction or food and psychology in general. Uh, there's lots of great resources and tips there. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Dr. Avina. 
I appreciate your time. And I've learned a lot. I'm going to start looking at how I eat a little bit differently after today. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Brain Performance Center.